Hello and welcome to another episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast, where we discuss all things acting, the craft, the mindset and the business side of things, and pretty much every little thing in between. My name is Gary Condes and I'm talking to you from London. I'm joined by fellow actors, teachers and coaches, pretty much dynamic human beings, Brian Casp, who is based in Prague. Hello, Brian. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? I'm trying to be dynamic here. I'm trying to exercise dynamism. You know, sometimes you need a bit of dynamism in your life, don't you think? I agree. <laughs> and also, we have Andrea Helen, who is no doubt being dynamic all the way over in Mallorca, Spain. Hello, Andrea. Hi, guys. Yeah, lots of dynamism happening here. Absolutely. Good. It has something to do with spring, oh, right? Yes, it does. I think you're right mm-hmm. there. I don't know what's happening where you guys are, but the buds are starting to appear. There's some decent sunshine happening, although it's still pretty fresh. Mm-hmm. So all the signs are very spring-like and dynamic. Oh, I love it. There's always an emotional response to spring that you feel in people. So we have a really great listener's question about how to go about deciding what work to take and what to focus on as an actor and whether an actor can afford to be picky with the roles they take in relation to perhaps what they want to do and which direction they want to go in with their career. Hmm. So we'll be picking that apart very shortly. But before we do, Brian, what have you been up to this week? Well, I've been up to a whole bunch of stuff that I can't really talk about. I've been on a project. Well, oh, okay, Andrea, what would you like? To <laughs> Wait a minute, I do have something. I, I've no, but you've been doing something I've, really interesting, haven't you? Yeah, I've been working on a project that I really can't talk very much about. But I did have a situation come up on that project that I thought I would relate to you and to the listeners of an example of how you need to be flexible on a set. And the story basically is that at the audition for this job, we had been given some text to learn, and I had been working on it. And as I booked the job, they were like, okay, this is your text. And you got that. And I said, yes, that's the same as what we had at the audition. And they were like, great. And then we were going to shoot that scene. It was basically about a page and a half dialogue between myself and another character. And I was getting my makeup done and a PA came up and he said, oh, here's the the text for the scene. And I said, oh, I've learned that text. I'm I'm fully off book. I don't need it. And he said, oh, because they said that you should look at this. And I looked at it and they had rewritten the scene almost entirely. Wow. And you know, it's not like it's seven pages of dialogue, but it was significantly different. The sense was kind of the same, but it was different. And so I spent the next hour or hour and a half trying to memorize the words as much as I could in the right order. (laughs) And then we went and shot it. And basically, I think it's just a lesson about, you know, you want to prepare as much as you can. And then you also need to realize that things are going to change. So you can't stick too closely to the preparation. And luckily, the script supervisor and the director and everyone realized that I might need some help with saying some specific words. And so I would call for line, but it was really one of those kind of like, oh shit moments when I saw that. And when we started shooting, because there wasn't a ton of rehearsal and I was just like, here we go. This is what we're doing. But it's interesting, isn't it? You can't legislate. I mean, you absolutely cannot legislate mm-hmm, for that. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I could have done. Nothing. Apart from which you did do is get your head down and do what you could in the time given. Try to memorize as much as I could. It helps when you can talk to the script supervisor, mm-hmm. because when you call line, that's usually who's going to be doing the other lines. I think the main thing that I was focused on in the doing was not freaking out <laughs> in the middle of the take. <laughs> Because because yeah. what happens when you go up on your line is you start to freak mm-hmm. out and you start to panic a little bit about not knowing it. And I knew that all I needed to do was to say, can you just say that line for me? And then I would be reminded and then I could go back into mm-hmm. it. But the more you panic and the more you kind of get flustered, the easier it is for you to completely lose the plot. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really what I was focused on. And you can start to unravel then if you lose the plot. Uh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Remember, we did a podcast on learning lines. Mm-hmm. So was there anything that you implemented during that short space of time that you had? Or did you not think about it and just get on with it? Or was there something that you actually implemented to help you deal with such a big ask? I tried to repeat the lines as much as I could. For me, repetition really helps. And interestingly, there was one line that I really couldn't, there was a transition that I just 
missed. And so every time I got to that line, I couldn't remember what that next line was. So in order to help me remember it, I it's not exactly what Andrea was doing, which was the first letter of each word. But I took a phrase in that line and I kind of anchored it in something real that was in the room. And so I knew that whenever I got to that line, I would look at that thing that I had anchored it in. And it wasn't like an acting thing. It wasn't like a um, like a circumstance, imaginary thing. It was like, no, when I look at this object in the room, I'm going to remember that line because this has something to do with that line. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I tried to make the connections between what I was saying as clear as I could so that saying one of the lines would remind me of the next mm-hmm. line. Do you ever think in these moments, Brian, you know, this is going to be a great subject for my next podcast. The universe has just given me a little gift. <laughs> Here I am on the spot, right? Having real world experiences that we talk about sometimes in theory and sometimes based out of our or a student's experience. But do you ever think, yep, this is going in the next episode? Well, I actually, I did. <laughs> I mostly thought that afterwards, once I had done it, <laughs> And thought, well, that's something that would be a good thing to Mm -hmm. talk about. And actually, you know, the lesson in that, it's very important, and we do this in my classes, to not just be a passive observer of the things that are happening to you, but to really get in there and say, well, how? what can I learn from this experience? What can I take from this? Mm -hmm. And so that's really important, regardless of whether you have a podcast or not. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Great. Well, tales from the front line. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Fantastic. So, Andrea, have you had any onset mm, fun and frolic? I wish I had. Um, no, I taught a Meisner class, and uh, and I worked with my daughter for a couple of days on an audition that she had for a really great project out of the U.S. And it was interesting to help her take on this thing because she wanted it so much. So dealing with the head was as much a part of what we were doing as dealing with the scenes, you know. In the end, I think she was really pleased with what she put together, but she took more time than she usually does. She memorizes things incredibly quickly. So the first day we were meant to work on it, she wasn't really clear on the lines, you could tell. So we took some more time and spread it out. And luckily we were given a good amount of heads up on this audition. But, you know, sometimes as we've talked about, you just have 24, 48 hours. And if she'd been in that situation, I think she never could have produced something that she would have been happy with. She would have been so focused on how it could change her life, what it means to her, how much she wants the job, how excited she is about it, and never really leaving room to put all of that aside and then get into the scene. So... It was an interesting time that we had together. In the end, I was very proud of her. So you're talking with her about the realities Mm -hmm. of not getting a job Mm -hmm. or wanting it really badly or the expectation of what the job is going to be is different from what it actually might be. So how are you preparing her for crushing disappointment? (laughs) 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 I guess, I mean, you know, because even if you get the job, it's probably not exactly what you would imagine it would be. No, it's a really good question. I mean, for her, what comes up are things like, do we know how many people are auditioning? No, honey, I think it's thousands. But Mm -hmm. what difference does that make? Whether it's 50 or 5,000, the only thing you can control is the kind of work that you do to prepare for it and putting your best work out there. So hearing the concerns, letting her voice the fears and, and the anxieties about it, letting her dream about the possibilities, but always gently bringing back to, okay, honey, this is what our plan is for today. So let's really do this. Mm-hmm. I'm really trying to watch her very closely and give her support, but also sometimes a little little kick in the backside. Mm-hmm. And in the Meisner class, I'm always interested to see this meeting point of emotional life and then clarity. Because it seems like when we are working with actors in a big emotional space, no matter which emotional direction they're working in, sometimes it's, it almost seems like there's this big cloud of dust that gets kicked up. And so it takes skill and craft to be able to keep focused on the thing you need to be focused on in that moment and in that section and in that scene. 
And I see sometimes the pitfalls when actors think that if they're working on emotional preparation, that's all that they need to take care of. This happens at many levels of the work. But in particular, with the Meisner work, I think it happens when you're making this transition from exercise work into integrating emotional preparation into your scene work. So I think I was watching a lot of Battles of the Mind this week. Mm-hmm. How about you, Gary? From time to time, as you know, I get together with some long-standing students of mine who are, you could say, at the stage of advanced work, and we work on creating a role and all the character work that goes with it. And this week we worked on Killer Joe by Tracy Letts. It's a very good play, and it's a great example of dealing with vivid characters that embody a certain psychological trait All the characters do embody certain psychological traits because of their upbringing and their past. So there's a lot of dysfunction at the heart of this play, and there's a lot of dysfunction at the heart of their lives, and they've had very specific experiences that present a lot of backstory info. And that is gold for interpreting and turning the psychology on the page into specific behaviors and bringing to life these core complexes. So that's what we kind of worked on. And the details of everyone's history and the circumstances are so clearly set out in this play that it's really, it's so meaty and it's a joy to paint on that kind of canvas and create really dimensional characters. Mm. So that's what I've been doing, really, character work with dysfunctional characters and really focusing on this skill of picking up their psychology and understanding what what that translates to. It's a bit of a recommendation too, but it's, it's what I've been working on. And if anyone wants to do vivid character mm-hmm. work and examine characters in this way, then this plays very fertile. Yeah, ground. Tracy lets mm-hmm. he never um, backs away, does he, from difficult characters? No. No. Osage County mm -hmm. is one I mentioned a while back in a podcast, and he's one of my favorite American playwrights, Mm -hmm. or at least modern American playwrights, because, yeah, he doesn't hold back. It's really gutsy, and he doesn't shy away from unflattering parts of the human psyche. Mm -hmm. Those are the most fun parts to play, though. Absolutely. That's part of it, yeah. And that's why I chose it, because they are... They're juicy, you know. Yeah. You have to expand out into this and you have to jump around and splash about. There's nothing sort of ordinary about mm-hmm. these characters. Whether you put on the Texan accent or not is another thing, but it's like, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of English actors here. But like you say, it's totally play. Everything that you have to adopt in this is play. Mm-hmm. It's difficult for some actors to drop their everyday things that they rely on, which have served them very well and got mm-hmm. them, you know, a lot of work. But this kind of vivid character work means you just got to jump off the cliff and it's going to feel a bit hokey at times and a bit uncomfortable, but you got to crunch through the gears to get there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have this, but sometimes you'll ask students in a class to do something and they go, yeah, but that doesn't feel real to me. <laughs> and there is something to be said for feeling real, but there's also something to be said for exploring behaviors that are outside of your comfort zone and making those more comfortable. Yeah. Well, Brian, when they say that, what do you think they mean by real? I think they mean it doesn't feel like me and we're supposed to be natural. Mm. And that's not how I would naturally react. Yeah. It's very interesting you just bring this up because I talked about this in my class today about truth. Mm -hmm. But someone asked me, how do I measure the truth of what I see in some of the homework that I'm marking or at least feeding back Mm -hmm. on? Mm -hmm. You know, you bring up two words there, which I often use, natural and Mm -hmm. real. To me, natural doesn't mean real. Mm -mm. Actors often try and be natural, which is exactly what you just said, Brian. And that Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean it's real for this particular type of role. For me, the difference between natural and real is alive and dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, real is alive. There's lots of different kinds of real. You know, how do you measure it? And natural, I often find actors are being natural, or at least they're saying, I'm trying to be natural. It feels real to them because they are working in a bandwidth of habit and behavior that is their everyday mm-hmm. bandwidth. It's comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about what is truth and how do you measure it? Well, if you look at a film like Grand Budapest mm-hmm. Hotel, mm-hmm. at heart, it's a farce. Mm-hmm. Really? And if you look at Rafe Fiennes in that and the sort of tempo and the rhythm Mm -hmm. that Wes Anderson gets him to work at and the sort of almost heightened, stylized way of doing certain things, that's certainly truthful within that world. And at no point do I think he's being fake or pushing it. Definitely, he seems natural in that reality. But again, you know, what's true in Grand Budapest Hotel is not necessarily true in, I don't know, State of Grace Mm -hmm. with Sean Penn and Gary Oldman or some very gritty 
naturalistic drama, mm-hmm. whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or Schindler's List. Or Schindler's yeah. List, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a totally different reality, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation, and I think it can't be covered in a short space of time because... That'll be added to our topic list. There you go. Yeah. There's one that's just come there up. You go. Cool. Great. All right, you guys. I'm excited to get to this listener question. So we'll be back right after this. You, <laughs> Brian's commercial. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look, we all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner, and if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters your audition, and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, you can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member. You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put Vagabond25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. So moving on to today's uh, main topic, we have a listener question from Christian. And Christian asks us the following question. He asks, can working with commercials hurt a film actor's reputation and your film career. The reason I'm asking is because I am mostly receiving commercial opportunities as of now. I don't mind working with them, but I don't want to hurt my film acting journey at the same time. So that's Christian's question. Yeah, I think that's a good question to ask. I think it's actually a fairly common question as well, because as we talked about maybe a few episodes ago now, depending on when the episodes actually come out, it's very hard to know what your career's journey is going to be from where you are currently. And you might have an idea of where you want to go, but you don't know how exactly you're going to get there. I've met directors who've subsequently hired me on other things working in commercials, and you just don't know who you're going to meet at any particular job. And I think that as a wider answer, or to broaden the question out a bit, I think it's mostly like, how do you decide which roles to take, which types of work to go for, and is there a chance that any type of work is going to hurt your career or not? That's something that we should get into, as well as if you have a moral objection to working with a particular company, you know, because that sometimes happens in commercials where it's going to be for a product that you don't quite believe in, but it might pay a lot of money. And so you might be torn in that area, or there might be a role that espouses a message that you don't particularly believe in. So that might be a question to get into as well. Personally, I feel like in today's world, there isn't really any kind of role especially in any commercial that's going to be broadcast that is going to really hurt your film career. The only way that I think it might start to hurt, and I don't know if it even would be with films, but it might be with booking other commercials, is if you start to be really doing a lot of commercials that are out there quite a bit, then other advertisers won't might not want to hire you because they'll say, well, you already are advertising this other product. And so we don't want any confusion because we kind of feel like you're a known quantity. I think if you're doing the right work that we talk about on this podcast, that we value on this podcast, which is digging into the character, digging into text, really getting into the analysis, all of that kind of stuff, where you're really committing to the work that you're doing when it's more of a narrative story that you're telling, then I don't think that being in a commercial is going to hurt your opportunity to book a film role? Yeah, I think Brian makes a lot of great points. This is a question that used to come up maybe 20 years ago. And I think that times have changed somewhat. I do think that there was a period of time in the U.S. markets where you were known primarily as being a commercial actor or as they called it, a theatrical actor. 
And you had often different representation. You had a commercial agent and you had a theatrical agent, which is still sometimes the case. But at some point, it became very lucrative for well-established television and film actors to get into commercial work. And suddenly, it was a place that people wanted to be. And that changed the perception from a casting perspective somewhat on the role that commercials play. The tone of commercials also changed. There was a whole new field of commercials that opened up, much more humorous. They were more slice of life. They were more narrative. The craft that was being practiced within the commercial world also shifted. And they started looking very specifically in casting for actors, not just commercial actors, but actors who could handle script. And you will get breakdowns in the commercial world that will say, I need somebody with craft who can handle a lot of dialogue, who can bring a certain feeling to it, who can grab this tone. And so I think in the casting world, the perception of the value of the commercials shifted, the competition for the commercial jobs shifted, the content shifted. And this question that actors also often felt faced with, which is what Christian is pointing to, it sort of faded away in my experience. So I don't think it's as much a relevant question as it used to be. From my perspective, if you have the opportunity to be on a professional set and doing a commercial for a product that you feel, as Brian said, morally in line with, and it's going to be a professional setting, hopefully a union job if you're in a union market, then I don't see any real big negative impact on the course of your dramatic work in film or television, personally. Now, I do think there also could be a regional component to this question. It could be that in smaller markets, there is still more division between the actors who are being brought in for commercial work and theatrical work. But for the most part, in my experience, in the larger U.S. markets, certainly, this isn't a big negative. To be going out and booking commercials is not a big negative in terms of the development of the rest of your career. Yeah, just picking up on that first part of his question, can working with commercials hurt a film actor's reputation and film career? I mean, my pithy answer would be yes, it can, and no, it can't. There are plenty of actors who have had very successful careers and even become well-known faces as an actor who have started off in commercials and they get on chat shows and they dig out their past work and you often see them in commercials and they've done quite a few. That hasn't stopped them. Times have definitely changed, as you guys said, and it's less segregating and it's probably more forgiving. But I think the problem does come when it's all you're doing and it's all you've got in your CV. And that is what the casting director and director is seeing and comparing that to someone who maybe does have film credits, then it may well go against you in the same way as if you've just done theatre against someone who's done a lot of film and you're going up for film. That will have some kind of effect with certain people, maybe not as much as in the past, for sure. But if you're not getting a sniff of film or TV and that's what you really want to do or you want to do more of it, then do something to change that if that's indeed what you want to do. Maybe it's time to do some film yourself so you start to get some credits, whether it's a short film or whether it's just doing scenes that are filmic or pursue independent work or even maybe change your agent to include that. I don't know whether it goes against you, but it may well go against you if you haven't got a bunch of film credits and you're going up against people who have had more film experience. I think the time comes to ask that question really is if that's all you're getting and you're accumulating a lot of commercial credits but nothing else, then I think it's time to maybe look at trying to change that up. Yeah. Two things came up for me listening to you guys talk about this. One of them is that if it's a choice between working a day job and earning your living from doing commercials, I would say do the commercials. They're going to pay you much more than you would get for a lot less time spent at work than a typical day job will. And that will leave you a lot more time to practice your craft, to get your materials ready, to work on your own films, to do all that kind of work that Gary was talking about. When I moved to Prague, I was thinking the best case scenario for me would be to have my day job be commercials and then to sprinkle that with other types of work, like doing the theater performances that I wanted to do or being 
in a film or a TV show here and there. If you're booking, let's say, 24 commercials a year, which is an incredibly high amount, then you might want to scale that back. And if your ambition is to become a film or TV actor, then maybe turn down every other commercial so that you can live off of it while you are pursuing your film acting career. The other thing that I wanted to say was that like, if you're working so much that you have a choice between doing a commercial or doing a film and your ambition is to do film, then do the film. That seems like an easy choice. I think it's a common question to worry about which type of work you're getting before you have the volume of work where you really need to choose. And so just just be aware of that. So maybe you don't need to choose right now and just take the work that you're getting because as Andrea said, work is work and being on a professional set is very important. You have no idea who you're going to meet on those sets. The other danger that I would say, in addition to what Gary was talking about, is that the amount of acting and storytelling over a longer arc that's required for some film roles is different than what you need in a commercial. Like a commercial is very much more about that instant look. And if you're auditioning in Eastern Europe and you're not speaking the language, then a lot of those commercials are not going to be speaking parts. So you want to be aware that if you're doing a lot of commercials or a lot of commercial auditions, you're not exercising the same kind of muscles that you would be if you were needing to do auditions for scenes or play scenes in films or TV shows. And so you want to make sure, even if you're taking a lot of commercials and making money from them, that you are not thinking that that's enough work to do to be ready when that film role does come along to really nail it. Brian, you mentioned the question that sometimes comes up in commercial land. Sometimes you're faced with the question of whether you should accept an offer for a product that you may not be in sync with. Have you faced this yourself? And do you have any words of advice about this? Uh, the first big commercial that I did that actually launched me into a financial place that I didn't have to really worry week to week about money was a commercial for a cigarette company. And I thought about it. And then I, I really do generally come down on the side of like, they're going to have to cast someone. Uh, I could use the money so I can do it. Now, it's interesting because I don't enjoy smoking and I don't think it's a good product, but I think there are things that I am morally opposed to, like if it was something that was very religious in a way that didn't speak to me, that I feel like that would be something that I just would try to not go to. I think there are probably lines that I wouldn't want to cross, mm -hmm. but I haven't found mm -hmm. one yet. <laughs> like, I guess, you know, one line that I wouldn't want to cross again after having done it was I had to play a role, and this was not in a commercial, but I had to play a role where I actually raped mm -hmm. someone. And that was something that I feel like would be difficult for me to do again. Mm -hmm. I would really need to talk with the director and really make sure that the experience on set was done in the right way. But in terms of a commercial, usually the products that are out there, you know, like they're fine for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, I've done some beer commercials and uh, car commercials. You know, I drive cars and drink beer. Yeah. <laughs> and they were a lot of fun and they were financially very worthwhile. But no, I don't think I ever had to really look at a product that I wasn't comfortable with. There were always some, some products where I thought, well, if I ever get offered that, no. But I don't think I was in that position. You know, like I don't really want to do Depends diapers for adults. Well, yeah. But... Other than that, I, you know, I'm kind of flexible beyond certain things. You know, like I could see that if you were a hardcore vegetarian mm -hmm. and doing a yeah. commercial for McDonald's or something mm -hmm. like that, then that could be maybe difficult mm -hmm. for you. I kind of feel like cross that bridge when mm -hmm. you come to it and no one's going to force you to go to mm -hmm. the audition. There are two parts to the question that you're faced with in that moment, though, and one of them circles back to Christian's question. So one piece of that is, is this something that, I feel comfortable to take on for myself. And the other one is if I do a commercial for this product, how might that impact my perception as an actor in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. And will that have a detrimental effect on future castings? Mm -hmm. Right. And so whether it's a commercial or it's other kinds of work, there is sometimes that question that you face, which is what, what is there a potential downside to taking this job? Is this going to work against mm -hmm. my ultimate goals? 
What are the criteria that I'm assessing this by? I mean, I think it's really hard to know what it's Mm -hmm. going to be. So maybe there'll be a case where you ahead of time can kind of go, well, this might be a problem. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then try not to do that job. <laughs> in the ideal world, and I know that where I'm at and where I think a lot of our listeners are at, like we talked about in a previous episode, you might not have the representation, the manager or the agent to advise you and to say, although agents sometimes were like, let's get the money, mm-hmm. but like a manager who will say, yeah, I think this could be mm-hmm. a problem. You kind of have to make these judgment calls on your own. I've never had a job, and I've been in some stinkers too, you know, some stinky (laughs) films that were very not well received by the public. And I don't think it reflects so badly on the actor. I really don't. And I think that there's so many benefits from being on a set that for the most part, taking the work outweighs not taking Mm -hmm. the work for the most part. Yeah. I mean, if you have certain moral guidelines that you live by in in life, then those should really apply to some of the commercial work. If we're talking about commercial work or or any kind of work, I suppose, in acting, you know, it should follow on. For instance, if there's something morally dubious and you don't want to endorse that, then it kind of speaks for itself. Then there's what you're comfortable with. You know, I would not do a commercial for McDonald's because I really don't like it. And plus, I have no connection to it. It doesn't mean I wouldn't do a commercial for a burger. In fact, I wouldn't do any commercials right now myself at this age. (laughs) Depends on how much they're going to pay you. Well, yeah, you know, I'm not in the market. So there's Mm -hmm. that. But it is important to me to make some personal choices. You know, I remember I literally went to a handful of commercials when I first started out. And I'd be going there with, you know, a copy of Chekhov's Uncle Vanya in my back pocket, reading that before I went in and then going there and going, I don't want to do this. Now, you can say that I'm being snobbish and all the rest of it, probably. But within about a year, I said to my agent, I don't want to go up for any more commercials. Now, Mm. you can say I shot myself in the foot, but I just personally Mm -hmm. did not enjoy or get a kick out of having to sell Austrian mountain cheese while dressed in laser (laughs) hoses. I'm just not going to do that. That's probably why I lived in a garret above a cafe four floors Mm -hmm. up for a number of years while I pursued Mm -hmm. my life. Mm -hmm. But hey, it's a personal thing. But one has to really look at their own moral compass and decide from there because I'm not going to judge anyone else. If someone wants to do a commercial for a religious denomination, then fair enough. Follow your moral compass if you've developed it in certain ways and stick to it and not give yourself a hard time. And that's it. The lure of money and doing work on commercials is fantastic. It's part of an actor's income. If you start to think about where it's going to lead me and all the rest of it at that stage, then you're kind of second guessing things. And I think, well, why? Just deal with like, do you want to do it or not? Mm -hmm. Because of these reasons Mm -hmm. and that's it. And then do it. But one thing I wanted to talk about was just basically follow on about what to focus on and does it hurt my chances and how to go about choosing. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of things to consider and You brought it up already, Brian. I think it's the first question you should ask is what stage are you at in Mm -hmm. your career? Yeah. Are you starting out? Do you need experience? Do you need to build a CV? Do you need an agent? Mm -hmm. Do you need a new agent? Do you need camera experience? Do you need actual film experience? And I'm talking about film because I'm relating it back to Christian's actual question. Mm -hmm. And it seems that that's what he wants to pursue. And people say you got to be picky and other people say you don't be picky. But I think certainly it depends on what stage of your career. And if you are starting out, then I don't think you can afford to be picky. You know, I really don't. Because one, you're an actor and an actor acts. And we've all been through the whole gamut of problems that arise in starting out as an actor. So it's tricky. But if you're clear about what kind of work you want and you're the kind of person who is adamant about that, then pursue that. And again, lead by your personal moral compass, if that's what you want to call it, because life's Mm -hmm. too short, you know. And if, if you don't know what you want, if you actually don't know that you want to just work in films and that's it, and you have this kind of personal compass where you don't want to do commercials and you want to just do art house theater, whatever it is, then if you don't know what to do, then the, surely the biggest motivator is to act, mm-hmm. basically. But you hear different things, don't you? I mean, it, again, it's a very personal thing and it's not one size fits all because, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman was asked by a journalist any advice and he says you have to act wherever you can you can't be picky even if you're auditioning for something you know you're not going to get if someone else is paying the rent on a room you got to act as well as you can that was his quote (laughs) Mm -hmm. but then you look at a recent Rufus Sewell interview and he says that 
Uh, he confessed that he was so picky about the roles that it backfired on mm-hmm. him. Sometimes he went so long without going with a role because he was being picky that he had to then accept terrible parts that he wouldn't have got if he'd have chosen the original <laughs> parts that he was picky about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, so the truth is in the beginning of your journey, while you're still making the first steps in your starting career, the debate doesn't hold much weight, mm-hmm. to be honest. And any acting opportunity will do because you won't get many of them anyway. And doing yeah. any kind of gig will make you better all-round performer. You've got to be on the pitch, as they say. But then there's criteria, isn't there? And we've talked about this, I think, before, certain criteria to pick something, whether you should pick something. Do you remember that conversation we had mm-hmm. about the certain checklist that you have, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whether it's a good role, a good script, a good director, good money, a reputable, experienced production company? You've got to decide how many of those variables are enough to make you want to do something or not Yeah, and be picky. It reminds me of the question of when do you stop taking bit parts? Mm-hmm. Right. It's a little bit further down the line, maybe. So if you feel like commercials are below film roles in terms of their reputation, then you start getting film roles, but you're probably not going to get large film roles. You're going to get small film roles first. And then you'll face another one of these questions <laughs> after you've done a few tens or hundreds of small film roles, then you say, well, at what point do I stop doing that? Is that going to hurt my reputation? Am I going to be known as the small film role guy? Mm-hmm. And when do I just say I'm only auditioning for supporting roles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of never ending, like a lot of things in the business where you kind of face these decisions and everything is kind of murky. Yeah. It's a tricky one, like yeah. you say. It really is. And it's, like you say, never-ending. It's kind of twist or bust, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It can be. I get a lot of clients in my coaching who are doing exactly that. They've got to a certain stage. Let's say they've been playing supporting or lead roles in independent movies. Yeah. And they said, I'm not going to do that so that I can move into the bigger blockbusters or big commercial movies, maybe lesser roles, small parts or small supporting roles, not as big as they were in the independent market but we've stepped up a market yeah and some of it's worked and some of it hasn't and they're like not working yeah there's no guarantees that it's a tricky that's a really tricky one i don't know what the right answer mm-hmm. is a casting director that's here in prague that i hope to have on the podcast soon because i asked her about that when do you stop taking this level of role and start to only take the next level up And her advice was, if you don't have time to do the smaller roles because you're so busy doing the larger roles, then that's when you should stop. And that kind of takes care of itself. (laughs) Right. Does that make sense? It's kind of actually happening organically where the decision is made for you rather than you making the decision in advance. Right. And you're basically just putting your head down, doing the work, doing the opportunities, saying yes, as we talked about in previous podcast, saying yes to the opportunities that are right in front of you, and then it'll work itself out. I think that's pretty much where I come down on this this question is basically say yes to as much as you can. Mm -hmm. What we mostly are coming down on in this podcast is the internal Mm -hmm. question of whether I should accept it based on my own values or my own morals or my own sense of what I want to do. No matter what point you're at in your your career, that's always a valid point. But I think the... Right. But it's not going to be from the external side. Exactly. And so while there used to be a bigger conversation around the value of commercials on the actor's sort of, you know, pedigree. I think that's changed a lot. And there, as we've said, there are too many positive opportunities that can come from saying yes to the work, right? Absolutely. Unless you really do begrudge, you know, the money might be good, but if you're the type of person who's who's getting commercials and actually begrudges that. Step aside, let somebody else take it then. You yeah. Know? Well, yeah. Right? But I mean, if you really, if you really don't want yeah. to do it and you want to do film, but you're not doing film, then go and do mm-hmm. film. Right. But that's that internal choice. Yeah. So the question is, if there's an external consequence to doing this work, I would say, No. No. You know, maybe in one case in a hundred or one case in a thousand, there's going to be some external consequence to taking one particular job that is negative. But I think most of what we're saying is if you want to do it, do it. If you want to do it for the money only and you don't care about the work itself, 
that's fine. Nobody's going to judge you for that. If you don't want to do it because you want to do some other kind of work or because you feel like any particular job is not in line with your values, then don't do it. Nobody's forcing you to do that. And there might be consequences to not taking a job. And there might be consequences that you find to taking a job, but they're probably going to be internal and not external. Mm -hmm. A real problem is, is the fact that one needs to work and in acting, the work is spread over many sort of genres and types of things that one can do, whether it's voiceover, commercial, theatre, TV, film. Of course, it's all one in one sense. Mm -hmm. But because there are a fair few branches of acting that one can make a living from, and if you are covering all bases, then you've got a better chance. The pressure, in fact, is, well, I don't really want to do commercials, but... I might get one every now and again, and I, it's kind of the lottery type of syndrome, and that will help me make some money. So I'll keep doing it, even though I'm unhappy about it. That's mm -hmm. the pressure, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Which is a real pressure, and it's totally understandable that you're going to stay in the lottery as much as possible, or the widest amount of lottery that you've got. Yeah. But again, if it's making you unhappy, and you know that your drive is to make films, or be in films, or to be around films, then do something that takes the place of commercials and pursue the films. Yeah if that's truly what makes you happy. But it's difficult, really is, because there are income options in other places that are attractive and also are easy to go along with. Yeah, I've basically said that I won't be auditioning for featured extra parts, Yeah, you know, and I think I've earned it. But yeah. even if the money is fairly good, even if the money is the same, I would much rather be playing a part rather than being a featured extra. Right. And that's an internal choice. And it might lead to me working less. It probably will, probably has. But that's something that I don't want to do because I don't like the feeling of standing around on set, really not contributing in any individual way to the product. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to be on set and I want to be important. To be honest, like, you know, I want what I, well, yeah, I mean, no, I get it. I, when I'm in a scene, I want to move into parts where I am yeah. important in that yeah. scene. <laughs> you know, early on, it's uh, quantity over quality. And then later yeah. on, it's quality over quantity. <laughs> right. <laughs> or the holy grail, quality and quantity. <laughs> right, exactly. But I'm in a position financially where I don't need to take those roles and I'll be fine. And but if I wasn't and I was like, well, I really want to be on sets, then I probably would take those roles. And I have taken those roles. Yeah. And that's a decision that, that I've made. And, it, and like we talked about it at the beginning, be voracious and yeah. take as much as you can. Do as much as you can. And I always come back to that you're going to meet so many people doing that, that you yeah. have no idea where your path goes, really. Yeah. Don't be choosy to start with. So you no. can probably be able to be choosy later on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if it all works out. Hopefully. Hopefully it will. Yeah. And if not, I mean, you could use the time in a commercial to write your own stuff. So <laughs> there you go. There you yeah. go. Fantastic. I think that has hopefully answered Christian's question. If not, come back to us, Christian, with a postscript and we'll pick it up. But um, let's get on to our final part of the episode where we offer up a top tip, some work of art or play or film or TV or piece of music that has made an impression on us this week. So, Andrea. Yeah, I, nothing terribly highbrow for me this week, but there is a film that I think came out a few years ago called The 100-Foot Journey with Helen Mirren, and I think it's available on Netflix right now. And it was recommended to me by a friend who's a professional baker. And it's if you love food and you love stories about food and you love lovely European settings, I highly recommend it. And it's easy to watch with the whole family. It's about an Indian family who ends up in the south of France and they open a restaurant right across the street from one of the most famous Michelin-style restaurants in France, owned by Helen Mirren playing a French woman. And it's a lovely story of how the families uh, deal with each other and end up becoming friends. And it's lovely. It's really lovely. I, we, we enjoyed it so much. So it's about the food, it's about the senses, it's about the life of being a chef, it's about the restaurant industry, and then it's about culture and how cultures interact. So I highly recommend taking a look at that. Also, I just lit upon a book 
called Professional Troublemaker by a woman named Lovey Jones. And she's a comedian. And apparently she did a TED Talk a while ago that got a lot of views. And she had written another book that was quite well regarded called I'm Judging You. And so now she's come out with this. And I was just hearing an interview with her on a podcast. And I thought, oh, this I need to get this. It's really about fear and combating fear and saying yes to yourself. So I'm just starting it, and I will have a report for you on our next podcast. Great. Cool. Brian, what have you seen or heard? I'm continuing my Chinese journey. I have continued to work on my on my Chinese with Duolingo, and I have been watching some, some very interesting Chinese movies on Netflix, which I've been liking them very much. One is called The Ying Yang Master, and one was called Double World. And they are historical fantasy movies with magic and, you know, heroes and heroines and evil people and serpents. And I understand maybe two or three words. <laughs> of it i mean I, there's subtitles obviously but i'm i'm catching a few words i can understand the word three when i hear it in chinese and you or we and i sometimes so you know i'm i'm on the road to uh my fluency <laughs> in mandarin exactly <laughs> what about yourself gary well we were hunting for um a tv series to watch together me and my other half because we hadn't for a while and we've kind of gone our separate ways and I've been involving myself in art house European movies and, uh, and she's been getting involved in romantic films and it's like okay we better come back together at some point uh, uh, <laughs> we've had a bit of a holiday and um, we got into which I was I was skeptical about I'll admit Big Little Lies oh mm. yes I knew nothing about it in my defense being mm -hmm. skeptical but mm -hmm. I have to say it was fantastic so mm -hmm. my tip is Big Little Lies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with Laura Dern, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Kidman and Shalene Woodley. Mm -hmm. It's two seasons so far and it's the sort of a it's about the apparently perfect lives of these upper class mothers and their kids go to this very sort of prestigious school, elementary school and all these lives are shattered when a murder takes place in their idyllic town and it unravels a real can of worms and it's a it's a really smart take on the who done it, the form it's held within. Mm -hmm. It's really clever because the big thing that a lot of series might keep under wraps it just comes out with it's like we know that there's been a murder this is not a really a spoiler because it happens in the first episode but then it's really clever how everyone's lives goes on against the backdrop of this murder mm -hmm. and all the gossip surrounding it and all the mm -hmm. bitchiness and all the appropriate tension and the the red herrings and the relationships are gone and it's it's really good really sort of engrossing and um you know, I love Laura Dern anyway, mm -hmm. and she plays this high-powered businesswoman who there are a few times where she pushes her performance a little bit over, but because of that, everything else just hits at this sort of high level. She's she's no wallflower, this character, and, it's, and mm -hmm. I, I love her in it, and I mm -hmm. love all the others, Reese Witherspoon, mm -hmm. Nicole Kidman, and it's, you know, and even Meryl Streep comes in for the second series as Nicole's mother-in-law. You know, they're all yeah. on top-notch for yeah. So you mm. watched both seasons, Gary? Both seasons, yes. Yeah. So one of my yeah. dearest friends is the DP on the second season. Cool. And he had so many wonderful stories about working. You know, the, the second season takes, in a way, a, a more intimate and, like, more focused look at these characters who yeah. we've come to know in the first season. And, and that's how he works. He worked on Transparent and other projects with Joey Soloway. And he's very, very intuitive as a DP, and he told a story. I was like, okay, just tell, just give me one, give me one Meryl story, Jim. He said, <laughs> he said, she's just so skilled in her craft and also in the technical aspects of it. He said, we were shooting this scene with Nicole came in and they were across like the kitchen island. And the way we needed to have each of them move was this real dance. And it was all in the timing of how I was going to be following each of them. And we did it a couple times through and we were still trying to fine tune the movements. And then we did a take and Meryl just without it all moving out of the scene that she was in, she just sort of off camera lightly touched his elbow so that he could intuitively feel her and feel her pace as she moved. And she was just with like one finger on his elbow, his guide hmm. as the cameraman, you know, and they just sort of slid into the movement and he said it was perfect. He had nothing but praise for the performances of all of those actresses in the show. It was really, yeah. and you know, the therapist that Nicole visits also really, really skilled work by that actress. And there's just, there's some really great stuff. I also highly recommend it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great collection of characters mm-hmm. and actors playing great characters in a really well-constructed female-led TV series. Mm-hmm. But there's an interesting, talking about Meryl Streep, there's an interesting pushback that happened with against the director yes. uh, on it. I read a bit about it. Andrea Arnold is a British director who's actually mm-hmm. fantastic. She's done Fish Tank and a, a number of really gritty British movies. Mm-hmm. And there was um, a thing happened between Meryl Streep and her. I think it was fine, but it was very open. And Meryl Streep pushed back on the notes from the director about the interpretation of the character and apparently Meryl Streep wouldn't entertain any comments that insinuated that her character was a villain because mm. I think the director was wanting her character to you know in result orientated way that directors can talk mm. saying I think there's a note here that we need to make her a bit more evil and Streep allegedly responded that's none of your business mm. <laughs> which when you're Meryl Streep you can say that yeah. Mm-hmm. Parrish did not act rudely and she was adamant about protecting her character and this whole thing about humanising it and rather making it a villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whether we as observers don't like it and judge her for it, the actress was playing it for a real necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just in the same way she plays the woman in Devil Wears Prada, she's not a bitch. She is someone who will protect her company and want the best from her clientele. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes her apparently act in certain ways that to us might appear to be that's a right. bitch. I love it. So, yeah. Good stuff. So, Big Little Lies is my tip for this week. Great. Well, we, as always, want to hear what you guys out there in Vagabond Actorland have to say. We've gone on a nice run of having lots of listener questions come in. Let's keep it up. If you guys have things that you're wondering about or topics that might have come up in your work that you want us to think about and talk about on the podcast, definitely get in touch. You can get in touch with us either on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook at Vagabond Actors. And we would love to hear from you and yeah, hear how you guys are doing. It's always nice for listeners to check in. And if you want to get in touch with us as individuals, you can get in touch with me at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to get in touch with Gary Condes, Gary, how can people get in touch with you? People can get in touch with Gary Condes on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Gary Condes, or drop me a line on my website, garycondes.com. I'd love to hear from you. And Andrea, how about you? I am on Instagram at Andrea Helene 3 and on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. Awesome. Until next week, when we're coming out with some other exciting episode, we want you to stay creative, stay healthy, and stay in touch. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Take care.